You may be seated. I'm reflecting in Mike's stead this afternoon. He preached Sunday on blessing. It's been a theme for our church for a few weeks in a row. He took it from this Old Testament passage in Genesis 32, which really is just an odd story if you think about it. I mean, Jacob wrestles with God and he puts his hip out of joint and he locks with a limb for the rest of his life and he's blessed through this encounter. Um, It's one of those stories that uh, the, the more you meditate on it, the deeper you dig into it, the further it goes. It lends itself to a, a range of interpretations and methods, and I think it's, it's particularly useful, one of these stories like this. It's, it's suitable for a reading known as, it's very esoteric, it's called the, the quadriga, quad, can you hear that, four? It refers to uh, four horsemen, four, four horses drawing a chariot. It was a way of interpreting the Bible, kind of an older way in the medieval times and before that in the ancient church. Um, the early Christians and the medieval Christians were convinced that Scripture is God-written, God-breathed, and so it, it's got a depth of meaning. And you can't really exhaust it. You can't ever get to the end of Scripture because it all centers around Jesus Christ. And so I, I can't help it. I've been doing this in men's Bible study for the past few weeks, and I'm going to do this again with this story in Genesis 32 of Jacob wrestling with God and, and going through these, through these four senses and seeing what is there in this story. So the first sense of Scripture is is the simple one. It's the literal sense. What happened? And it's fairly straightforward. One of the patriarchs, Jacob, wrestles with a man who turns out to be God and gets his name changed to Israel, and then we get this brief explanation of, ah, yes, that's why they call that place Penuel, because they met the face of God, saw him face to face. But then the ancient Christians were always convinced that those stories in the Old Testament especially have always something to do with Jesus. Because everything centers around what God is planning to do or has done in Christ. And so the next sense is called allegorical, something that has got a deeper meaning. What's what's the meaning of the story? What are the symbols or what are the doctrines that we can get from this story? And like I said, if you start reading the fathers on this story, you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I'll only give a few, but trust me, there are more. So verse 23 He took them, Jacob did, and sent them, his servants, his family, everyone, across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. St. Ambrose says this about this verse. Therefore, Jacob, who had purified his heart of all pretenses and was manifesting a peaceable disposition, first cast off all that was his, then remained behind alone and wrestled with God. For whoever sakes worldly things comes nearer to the image and likeness of God. This idea, I mean, can't you hear Jesus' words? Go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. And that someday we, we all have to reach a point where we decide whether we abandon loyalty to all of these other things and give our loyalty finally over to Jesus. That's one of the things that's going on here. But then verse 25, there's even more. When the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Again, St. Ambrose. The numbness in the side of Jacob's thigh foreshadowed the cross of Christ, who would bring salvation to all people by spreading the forgiveness of sins throughout the whole world and would give resurrection to the departed by the numbness and torpidity of his own body. This beautiful idea that actually in wounding Jacob, God brings a blessing. 
And a further wounding is coming. That is that Jesus, a descendant of Jacob, is going to be wounded on the cross in a much more dramatic and intense way for the salvation of the whole world. Verse 28. He said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Here's St. Augustine. This angel obviously presents a type of Christ. For the fact that Jacob, quote, prevailed over him, the angel, of course, being a willing loser. Does that sound like anyone? A willing loser. Represents the passion of Christ in which the Jewish people were seeming to have prevailed over him. And I would add the whole world, the Roman authorities. And yet Jacob obtained a blessing from the very angel whom he had defeated. Thus giving the name was the blessing. Israel, says St. Augustine, means seeing God. And the vision of God is the reward of all the saints at the end of the world. Finally, verse 31. I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And then the sun rose, and Jacob went on his way limping. St. Ambrose, once again, on this account, the sun rightly rose on holy Jacob, for the saving cross of the Lord shone brightly on his lineage. And at the same time, the Son of Justice rises on the person who recognizes God because he himself is the everlasting light. And then this isn't a church father, but I mean, just think about that idea of seeing God face to face. That has to be a preview of the incarnation when God literally puts on a human face. God the Son comes in the form of a servant to die on the cross, but You can eat with God, the disciples did. You can handshake God. You can see him face to face and hear from him, I love you, and tell him back, I love you. So that's the second sense, the the symbols, the deeper meaning of these parts of the story. The third is the moral sense. I mean, how are we supposed to live in light of this? What does Jacob's story possibly mean to us? Well, I, I think there are actually some really cool things that happen in this story that can relate to us. When God saves us, he changes our name. You might say he changes our last name from Adam to Christ. That is that our identity is no longer in our sin, in our failures, in our Adamness, our fallenness, but it's in Jesus and his righteousness. Our names are changed in Jesus. And then what about this idea that when we encounter God, when we see him, quote-unquote, face-to-face, it leaves us changed permanently. That is, when we encounter God in his being, in his realness, in Jesus and in the Spirit, in the community of believers, we, we don't leave from there unchanged. We're touched. We're, we're sanctified, is the theological term, made more like Jesus, that we believe that when we come together as Christians, when we take communion with faith, when we pray for each other, something happens in us. We're united more closely to God or we're healed from a sickness or a disease or somehow God changes us into the person that we are supposed to be more and more. And the final sense is this. It's uh, the anagogical sense, a really weird term. I don't know why they use that term, but they do. It's the idea of what does the story teach us to hope for? What does the future hold for us? What is eternity going to look like? Well, uh, there will be a day when the sun rises one last time and when we finally see Jesus face to face in reality. Can you imagine that? That one day you'll see Jesus. 
He still has his face. He still has his body. He can't wait to see you. And I hope we can't wait to see him. And one day we will see God as Jacob did, face to face. So whatever one of those kind of resonates with you most, pray that you'll just take that from here and be changed. And seek, as we will just in a few moments, encounter Jesus in the Eucharist. Seek to be changed by that. God, God, feed us with yourself. God, heal me. Go back for prayer. Today, Gary will be in the back praying during and after communion. I'll join him as soon as I can. Go, go seek to be changed. Something you want done in your life. Go seek it of God. And then hope that one day everything that we see will be transformed, transfigured, made perfect because we'll be fully known and see God face to face.